The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we revisit a popular topic wherein we continue to look at various apparent, supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. As before, we will examine them against what the Bible says in context, according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you, as a listener, have not done so already, Listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, answering, 
any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. In our last episode, we just finished celebrating, examining, and answering our 50th question regarding supposed Bible contradictions from our old friend, Mr. Ash, the atheist, skeptic, and humanist. Beginning five episodes ago, we began answering really serious Bible contradictions which according to Mr. Ash, constitute a fundamental attack on the Christian message. For our 51st randomly selected, serious, fundamental attack on the Christian message and apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Are God's rules consistent or not? Now, in this case, Mr. Ash goes on a virtual tirade of supposed interconnected examples regressing ad infinitum within his finite understanding, which supposedly represent irreconcilable contradictions. At the outset, Mr. Ash assumes, according to his priori bias, that God should be delivering whatever information and or revelation he wants to deliver in its ultimate form at the outset. And, of course, Mr. Ash asserts that God has innumerable various supposed mistakes, contradictions, changes, and do-overs. Mr. Ash will never admit to any changes, mistakes, contradictions, or do-overs within his worldview. So, if changes, updates, or additions are evidence of error, and the ultimate non-existence of God according to Mr. Ash, then why are additions, changes, and updates not evidence of error, and the ultimate non-existence of evolution. For example, does evolution cease to be scientific or cease to exist because of its errors, inconsistency, or contradictions? No, 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 no. Why, we just need more time to unearth the evidence which will fill in the gaps and prove the theory. But we still have faith in the theory despite the gaps, the contradictions, the errors, etc. It is only when we come to the Bible that we are encouraged to exercise immediate disavowal of God and His Word and cease looking for any evidence to explain supposed contradictions. This sort of bias and inconsistency on Mr. Ash's part only serves to illustrate the insincere claim to scholarship 
and open-mindedness, which Mr. Ash would pretend. In any case, what examples does Mr. Ash give us regarding God giving inconsistent rules? Well, the first supposed quote-unquote change in Mr. Ash's mind is the law. The entire Old Testament is replete with a discussion of the various laws, ordinances, and statutes which God commands or forbids, which are necessary for obedience and pleasing God and having fellowship with Him. Mr. Ash then believes that when the New Testament comes along, Jesus and the others change God's rules and abandon the law, which demonstrates that God is inconsistent, in error, and God doesn't exist. As a quintessential example of this supposed change, Mr. Ash cites Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, quote, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled." Unquote. So here, Mr. Ash complains that he is confused because supposedly it is unclear whether we are supposed to honor the law as outlined and detailed in the Old Testament or whether we are supposed to abandon it as suggested here and elsewhere in the New Testament. Alternately, if we were intended to follow the New Testament and its uh, teachings, then why would God not simply start the Bible with Matthew or with the New Testament teachings instead of confusing us all with information and commandments which supposedly demonstrate that God is confused, changes his mind, or is inconsistent? So, what is going on? Well, first of all, we did have a single, simple commandment which potentially could have been eternal. Let's remember that prior to Genesis 3, the only commandment was that we should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, all that Adam and Eve, i.e. mankind et al., had to do in order to have a perfect relationship with God, our Creator, was to trust and have faith in His covering grace, which He gave us at creation. Simultaneously, we were given an axiomatic warning by God that if we abandoned that covering grace and instead chose to supplant our relationship held by trust and faith with our own knowledge of good and evil, our own merits, our own works, we would die, i.e. be separated from God, who is the source of life. 
as it turns out, the second and third chapter of Genesis in the Old Testament is the identical message of the New Testament. There is no difference. It is an, an extremely simple, direct, and final formula provided by God from the beginning, and it is not God's fault that Mr. Ash is incapable of grasping it due to his lack of discernment and rebellion. Okay, so why are the remaining 38 books of the Old Testament necessary? Why all the commandments, ordinances, laws, and statutes? Well, for one thing, we asked for it. If we are going to attempt to be like God, as Satan suggested, according to the knowledge of good and evil, then it follows that an understanding of said good and evil would ultimately require that God, who is the ultimate source of all good and prohibition of all that is evil, would have to provide details of what the good and evil is. Hence, the need for God to reveal his commandments, ordinances, laws, and statutes to man so that man has the knowledge of good and evil that we requested. Secondly, Mr. Ash protests against the idea of progressive revelation. Mr. Ash believes that the idea of progressive revelation demonstrates that God has limitations. Because if God were omnipotent, then God would be delivering all information in its complete form instantaneously. However, as just illustrated, God's message of fellowship and a relationship in perfection held by trust and faith by his covering grace was immediate and complete. It was and is man's finite nature coupled with his post-Genesis 3 nature of imperfection, rebellion, and sin which present limitations for man. Mr. Ash boastfully challenges that nowhere in Scripture do we find any verse which supports the idea of progressive revelation. However, in truth, if we look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, we find the following, quote, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law which, had, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, 
The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that, faith has come. We are no longer under a schoolmaster, unquote. In layman's terms, what Paul is reminding us here is that the law, i.e. the commandments, statutes, regulations, rules, and ordinances, were and are all designed to teach and convict us demonstrably that we have fallen short of God's perfect standards. The law is a mirror designed to accurately reflect our fallen image and our need to find another way to be reconciled to God, which is not connected to the law or to our merits. The fact that man is stubborn, rebellious, and arrogant, and that God must patiently, constantly, or progressively reveal to our hearts the truth of our woeful condition is a fault in our nature, not God's. Even Mr. Ash, who would consider himself a Ph.D. in all things, would have to concede that he arrives at his final destination and certification of a Ph.D., through a progressive process which takes many years and much study. The fact that it takes years to obtain such degrees does not prove that the system involved is flawed or non-existent. It simply demonstrates to one degree or another the limitations of the student who has difficulty learning and retaining complex information in limited amounts of time. Thus, given that Mr. Ash obviously still does not understand this subject, we really have to question Mr. Ash and his issues. Now, in terms of resolving Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, which says, quote, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled, unquote. Here, in this verse, Jesus himself is clearly saying that he is not abrogating or abolishing the law. Jesus is fully God and fully man. As stated, God gave the law to manifest his perfect nature, righteousness, holiness, virtue, and character. Since Jesus is God, he as God could only reflect the same perfection of God the Father as is his nature. Mankind, on the other hand, is finite, 
and incapable on his own of earning or meriting God's perfect righteousness and holiness on his own, which is the lesson to be learned from the Old Testament, and almost 6,000 years of trying. Because none of us can please God on our own, as Romans 3 concludes, Jesus, who is God, also became fully 100% man and fulfilled all of God's righteousness and holiness on our behalf. So, just like in the garden, when man places his unconditional trust and faith in God's completed righteousness imputed to our account, we have reconciled fellowship with God in Christ. Following this, we have Mr. Ash, who then quotes Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, which says, Quote, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxes old is ready to vanish away." Unquote. Here again, Mr. Ash commits the false equivocation error of assuming that because Hebrews is using words like quote-unquote better and new, and also uses words which contrast these like quote-unquote old, that the existence of said contrasts reflects upon God and His trustworthiness. Yes, these contrasts exist. God says that he finds fault with the first covenant and that the first covenant is quote-unquote decaying, waxing old, and vanishing away, unquote. Well, this begs three questions. One, whose fault is it? Two, why is the covenant changing? 
And three, is what is happening intended or accidental? In the case of the first question, I, whose fault is it? As well as the second question, I, why is the covenant changing? God himself answers the question in the verse quoted by Mr. Ash. In verse 9, we read, quote, Because they continued not in my covenant, unquote. Additionally, God says in verse 12, quote, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and in their iniquities will I remember no more, unquote. In other words, as we look at the totality of Scripture, what we find out is that God's perfect pleasure was that mankind should live by faith and trust in God's covering grace. It was Satan who suggested that mankind could be like God by turning away from God's grace and living according to our own merits, efforts, and knowledge of good and evil apart from God. More importantly, as Romans points out, it is impossible to please God according to the law. As stated, the law, the first covenant, was instituted as a schoolmaster to demonstrate the futility of finite man whose nature is sin and rebellion to ever measure up to the holiness, righteousness, and perfection of God. This brings in the third question, i.e., is what is happening intended or accidental? Well, the institution of the law is an unavoidable, natural, logical, and necessary tool brought about as a consequence of man's disobedience and lack of faith. It was and is intentionally designed by request of man's actions to clearly reveal the perfect holiness and righteousness of God, who man is trying to be like apart from God's help. It is designed to be temporary, just as a schoolmaster is temporary, until such time as the student learns what the schoolmaster is teaching the student. Since sin and rebellion, which are man's nature, are like water, always seeking its lowest level, it is an axiomatic reality that as time progresses, the mechanisms, methods, and lessons of the schoolmaster will become antiquated, wax old, decay, and eventually vanish away. The decay and change is not because the schoolmaster is flawed. It is not because the laws which the student are learning by whatever means are flawed. The decay and the change are there because the students are learning and maturing. And therefore, the methods of day one are no longer needed. 
and some different methods are required for our students to advance. This is exactly the point of both Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 and 18 and Hebrews chapter 8 verses 6 through 13 is that none of us has ever been able to be like God or to please God according to our own merits following the first covenant of the law. We have, in fact, fully and completely failed to measure up to the perfection of God's righteousness and holiness, and we are all separated from God, deserving of God's wrath. But God also has perfect mercy, love, and grace. Hence, according to verse 12 of Hebrews 8, quote, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Unquote. God does this with a new covenant based upon faith in the finished work of his Son, Jesus Christ. Is there a failure of faithfulness or inconsistency on God's part here? No. The failure the unfaithfulness and the inconsistency are man's. Despite man breaking God's covenants, God in his mercy and grace provides a second, third, and fourth chances to undeserving people so that he would be glorified. The fact that Mr. Ash chooses to accuse God rather than take responsibility, only goes to demonstrate the thanklessness, the arrogance, and the rebellion on the part of Mr. Ash. Moving forward, Mr. Ash attempts to bolster his argument by saying that God made certain promises which were either repeated or changed, which proves that God is either forgetful or fickle, which in both cases demonstrates that God doesn't exist. As an example, Mr. Ash cites Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, which says, quote, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Unquote. In Genesis chapter 17, God again repeats his promise to Abraham with some additions. And again in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 and 18, God repeats his promise. Later, God gives promises through Moses and various other prophets to Israel regarding their future and their relationship with God. While the various promises in their entirety would be too extensive for this episode, Mr. Ash's argument appears to be that he believes that the existence of more than one promise proves one or more things. Number one, God is forgetful. Number two, God is contradictory since there is more than one promise. 
Number three, God is somehow unfaithful if he issues a second or additional promises without first fulfilling the preceding promises to Mr. Ash's satisfaction. Okay, let's look at the above. Number one, God is forgetful. Okay, let's simply ask the honest question. Is the fact that God repeats promises or statements only to be explained by saying that God is forgetful? Uh, could we possibly make the argument that mankind, who is finite and given to emotion, doubt, and forgetfulness, explains the necessity for God repeating himself? Uh, how about if we take into consideration that the Old Testament, as a printed and thus readable document, including aforesaid promises, would not have been readily available to Israel like it is today. Since all they had was the oral word and a possible scroll available to a scant few, would this not require the oral word being repeated by God and his various spokesmen? If God's statements and promises were repeatedly spoken orally, then would it not naturally follow that the same said information would be likewise recorded repeatedly in written form as they heard it? Uh, yes, in fact, that is the job description of a scribe who is the one who records what they see or hear in written form. Number two, God is contradictory since there is more than one promise. Okay, second question. Does the existence of one promise given automatically mean that if another promise is forthcoming, that the first promise is immediately invalid? Or that there is a contradiction? No. In fact, it is possible to have innumerable promises from the same person and the mere numerical existence of many promises never on its own insinuates that one or more of the promises are invalid or that the author of the promises is contradictory. In order for any promise to be qualified as invalid or the author of the promises to be established as contradictory, we would have to find at least two promises given by the same author to the same person which are completely irreconcilable or mutually contradictory. However, here to date, Mr. Ash has yet to proffer such an example. Instead, Mr. Ash submits repeated promises from God through various writers to the same person or persons and claims that because God repeats himself that the mere existence of more than one promise can only be explained by God having Alzheimer's or by conflating repetition with contradiction. Once again, repetition can simply be explained as the natural process of 
necessary when a person or people who are finite are given to human issues such as forgetfulness, doubt, and fear. Thus, reassurances and reminders by way of God repeating himself are both logical and required. As an example, I would ask Mr. Ash how many times has he told his wife or his children that he loves them? Shouldn't Mr. Ash only be telling them he loves them once? Since according to Mr. Ash's logic, telling them more than once demonstrates that Mr. Ash is contradictory or forgetful, and thus Mr. Ash doesn't exist? Number three, God is somehow unfaithful if he issues a second or additional promises without fulfilling the preceding promises to Mr. Ash's satisfaction. Okay, again, let's ask, does the existence of a second, third, or additional promises automatically mean that these promises are null and void or that the promise giver is unfaithful simply because the initial promise has not yet been fulfilled. No. In order to establish a track record, the faithfulness and veracity of someone and their promises, we would have to examine all of their promises in context and then establish how many, if any, have factually failed and there is no more opportunity for that promise to be fulfilled. So, for example, I tell person X that I promise to give them $1 million. Then, 80 years goes by and both person X and myself die without me ever having given person X any money. In this case, it would be accurate to say that I have been unfaithful to my promise. Now, on the other hand, I could promise to give person X $1 million and then one month later, I promise to give person X a brand new car. Does the fact that I promise to give person X a brand new car make me a liar if I have not yet given them $1 million? No. If we are both alive and there is time, then I can still do both. In this case specifically, Mr. Ash claims that God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, and then because God made a covenant with Moses, that the Mosaic covenant means that God canceled or voided the covenant he had previously made with Abraham. However, when in fact we look at Genesis chapter 12 verses 2 and 3, which says, quote, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and curse him that curses thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed, unquote. 
we see that Abraham's descendants, i.e. the house of Israel and or the Jewish people, did and have become a quote-unquote great nation. God did and has poured out many blessings upon Israel and has cursed others who cursed Israel. And all of this fulfilled promise has transpired despite any additional covenants or blessings which God repeated to Moses or anyone else. Well, at this point, Mr. Ash has more, which he is confused about, which requires additional clarification. But, unfortunately, we have run out of time in this episode. Given that we want to be fair in addressing all of Mr. Ash's dilemmas, we will defer the rest of Mr. Ash's comments and the resolutions to those questions to our next episode. We will also refrain from making any conclusions until a more complete analysis is in hand. Until then, this concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. It's my